and welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. Today I just wanted to talk about Patrick Day. We've had a few we've had a few days to reflect on his passing as he was laid to rest over the previous weekend. So it's forced a lot of soul searching within the sport of boxing. And I think it's for a number of reasons. I think the first and foremost one is the Patrick Day story isn't your typical boxing story. It's not your typical, this is all I've got, therefore I'm willing to die in the ring kind of story. At its core, this is about a guy who genuinely loved boxing. I'm not going to say he didn't need it, like most people say, because you don't know what people need. But Patrick Day had options outside of boxing. He had a degree in nutrition. He could have gone down that route. He came from a pretty educated family. And while not necessarily an affluent family, not a family in the breadline either. So he subverted a number of boxing narratives. You know, it's always the battle for poverty, the battle to provide for your family. Patrick Day was a man who enjoyed boxing. It was his passion. And in it being his passion... He was able to engage in the sport in a different way. And he was able to have that happy-go-lucky mentality that people talk about. And while I didn't know him personally, I've been able to speak to people that I know who knew him. And they speak highly of him. Articulate, intelligent, you know, things that are normally a surprise in boxing. But you'd expect from someone from the background he came from. So for him to die at his death touches a note with people because... Patrick Day could have been the guy on your campus. Patrick Day may have come for a job interview. Patrick Day may have helped you in your gym with a diet. Patrick Day was relatable to a lot of people. He had an accessible image. And through that, his death hit harder because a lot of people said that could have been someone I know. And in the aftermath of his death, And there was a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of soul-searching around what can be done to improve the sport. And I don't think we're any closer to an answer because deep down we don't really know what the causes are. And that's what I've wrestled with. I think my instincts were same-day weigh-ins would solve the problem, this would solve the problem, that would solve the problem, bigger gloves, different kinds of padding. All those sorts of things were things my intuitive response told me would solve the problem. But if you look at it, are the number of fatalities we've had in the ring this year abnormal? Not necessarily. It hasn't been unusual in the past to lose three or four people at the top level. Now, there may be others at various levels who have passed away that we're not aware about. But in terms of the public consciousness, three to four a year isn't unusual. Like It's a bad year, absolutely, but it's not a year that would count as an outlier. So... So deaths in boxing, what can we glean from the past? What can we, just looking back, what do we take away from it? That's really the question here. What, what, where do we look in order to understand how to make this better and how to make the sport safer? Because we need to know where to look before we can work out what the solutions are. We need to know where to look, we need to know what the issues are, and then what the solutions are. So, if we estimate that there have been 50 boxing-related deaths, and a boxing-related death for me is 
you had a fight, sustained an injury in that fight, and it turned out to be fatal, with with no intervening actions to to be another probable cause. So if we just assume there've been fifty, it's it's fifty, give or take ten percent. For being honest with you, about one quarter, just over one quarter of those deaths happened in two weight classes. Bantamweight, 118 pounds, and lightweight, 135 pounds. So, if you're a boxer in those weights, your risk of injury is infinitely higher than being a heavyweight. And if you're a lightweight or smaller, you should be worried because 60% of in-ring deaths are in the weight classes from lightweight down. Now, your intuitive response is the bigger guys are doing more damage to each other. Therefore, they should be among the fatalities. And I can't think of one fatality from head trauma in the heavyweight class. There was one from a heart attack, from what I remember. But heart attacks don't count because that can be triggered by any number of things. What we're looking at here is something that we can kind of link to boxing. So actually, being a heavyweight is probably the safest thing for you. Whereas being a bantamweight, God no. Being a lightweight, God no. And, you know, being a flyweight, superfly, they're risky weight classes in terms of your health. Now, why is that? And I don't think we know the answer. You know, I can throw some ideas out. I think a lot of these brain injuries aren't down to simply how heavy the punches are. It's not as simple as how many punches you take. It seems to be a combination of the two. And when the amount, we'll just call it energy, you know, the, call it the force, the thump, whatever. When the total energy exceeds a certain threshold, it seems to be fatal. And that's probably individual for every boxer. But what we can say is you're more likely to hit that threshold if you're in a division that throws a lot of punches. And so that rules out the heavyweights, the cruisers, the light heavies, and maybe the super mids, right? Because they're not high-volume punches. And I'm assuming no external support or influence. Just naturally, you'd expect them to throw far fewer punches than the little guys. Because the smaller guys are smaller, and they're throwing more punches. So proportionately speaking, there's, there's a trade-off here. Yes, they're smaller, so the punches aren't as impactful. But being smaller means the punches are faster. Being smaller means the punches come in greater number. Is there anything you can do to, to reduce that? Perhaps you make them box in 10-ounce gloves too. I don't know what the impact of that will be for boxing as a spectacle. But it offers an opportunity to perhaps reduce the energy that is impacting on the opponent. So that's one option, is to look at the size and the construction of gloves and actually outlawing what they normally call the punches gloves. So the Cleota Reyes's, the Everlast MX's, rule those out. Because if, if it is a fact that it's the number of punches plus the energy that each punch imparts into the brain as a function of your relative size, and I'm sure there's a scientist that could work that out, then that's one way to do it. 
But one of the things you find interesting is, over time, the fatalities have tended to move up in weight class. So over time, you start to see more light heavies, more super middles, more light middles. And why would that be when it's not been a historic trend before? And then this might echo what Paul Malinaji says when he talks about the problem of doping. If it's the number of punches being thrown combined with the force of each punch, then anything that enables you to be fit enough to throw more punches, be that EPO, be that growth hormone, or to generate more force, be that growth hormone or testosterone, suddenly becomes a massive risk factor. We will be unable to know this unless we improve our drug testing to know that actually is it the fact that more boxers are doping that is giving us these risk factors? I don't know the answer to that. I can't say one way or the other. But that would be, in terms of an emerging threat, that would be my area for concern. Because you're seeing guys like, let's go back to the World Boxing Super Series Cruiserweight final and you saw the amount of work that Alexander Usyk was able to do against Morat Gassiev. And that was an unnatural amount of punches to be thrown at that weight. So you increase the risk factor because those weren't taps either. They were pretty heavy punches. And if athletes are now in a position where they can throw 80 to 100 punches around in weight classes above light heavy, that increases the risk factor to boxers in that division who are traditionally used to taking half of that in terms of volume. You know, and if the performance-enhancing drugs are making you punch harder, if they're making you punch in greater frequency, this is a massive risk. And what we're saying is, in ignoring doping control, we might be opening up the avenue to more deaths. Because if the average weight, and I'm going to estimate it now because I haven't done the maths behind it, if the average weight of a boxing fatality before 2000 was about 120 pounds, if that was the average weight, maybe bantamweight, or you know, maybe super bantam, 122 pounds was the, the average before 2000. If after 2000 we're saying the average weight of a boxing fatality is 147 pounds, and I'm estimating it might be 140, that's still a significant leap over time. And it can't be explained by nutrition. It can't be explained by these strength and conditioning gurus that have come out of nowhere. It can't be. It has to be down to physiological capabilities. Suddenly, the guys in the bigger weight classes are able to generate more force, more consistently than their forebearers. And I know the argument goes, well, if you take the peds, maybe you can take punches better. Your increase in strength and your increase in ability to resist aren't linear. One can go well ahead of the other. And if boxing were to look somewhere... I think we have to go and be stricter on doping controls because once you do that, once you actively test your top 100 or top 150 boxers on this planet, I am convinced the punch output will come down. I'm convinced the force of each punch will come down. And once that happens, boxing becomes safer. We don't have to do anything more complicated. We don't have to alter the gloves. We don't have to look at same-day weigh-ins. We don't have to look at all these things. One thing we can look at is 
rehydration protocols. And, I, and yes, I am anti-doping, but I'm not necessarily against the idea of IV drips, providing that they come from a source that is neutral, because I understand the value after a strict weight cut of having a few hours where you you basically supercharge yourself back to normal. And if that helps you have the right composition and right volume of brain fluid, I think that mitigates a lot of the risk. Because if you look at the smaller weight classes, a lot of those guys are cutting larger proportions of their own natural weight to make those weight classes. Whereas if you're a heavyweight, you can box more or less at your natural weight. And I think that eliminates a big chunk of that risk too. So I think looking at hydration and how people recover from the weigh-in is important. I think looking at how you keep fighters hydrated throughout the fight is essential as well. So I think we are in, we're in an era where we should be able to provide drinks or anything similar that will help a boxer maintain a healthy balance within their body. It's not necessarily performance enhancing. I call it safety enhancing. So we need to look at all of these options and we need to address a lot of these things because these deaths aren't as simple as it's just one thing. It looks like it's the combination of any number of four or five elements that when they line up in the wrong way prove to be fatal. And so if Patrick Day's death, if Maxim Dadashev's death, if Mike Tal's death you know, and the list goes on. If all of these deaths can do something for the sport, it's to say, enough is enough. Let's start looking at it critically. Let's start looking at what the information can tell us and start being bold in how we look at solutions. Let's not be a Steve Bunce. Let's not sit there and go, there's nothing we can do, because that's not true. There are things we can do. And the first one is, how about taking some of that billion to zone have and saying, Every DAZN fighter will be tested every month. We will build up a biological passport of our fighters to make sure that they're clean and they're behaving themselves. That will do wonders for safety. And if Eddie Hearn is serious about wanting to do something about the sport for the sake of Patrick Day, that's where you start. And let's go from there. And, you know, that's where I probably want to close it off now because I think I've said enough. And I think, you know, just to, as always, to anchor the point, please, if you're not subscribed on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice, please subscribe. Please also share with those who are close to you, those people you know love boxing. Get them involved, get them passionate about it. And then always, you know, let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at Highfield Boxing and on Twitter at Highfield Boxing. I do appreciate the support, and I definitely appreciate the conversations we have about boxing. As always, thanks, guys, and take care. <laughs>